You're listening to an encore edition of Studio Tulsa recorded earlier this year. Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. It's said that women have to be twice as good to advance far in their professions. The same can be said for black Americans. And for black women, that means the unwritten requirement is to be at least fourfold as good. My guest today learned this in her journey to find black female physician role models in the United States. Pioneer women who overcame incredible adversity and personal and systemic bias and racism to achieve their dreams of helping and healing. Jasmine Brown is currently a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. A Rhodes Scholar, she wrote a master's thesis to obtain her MPhil degree at Oxford University that became the basis of her brand new book just out from Beacon Press called Twice as Hard, The Stories of Black Women Who Fought to Become Physicians from the Civil War to the 21st Century. The book is mostly history, with memoir woven through, about Brown and her forebears' epic journeys to enter the profession despite numerous obstacles. Jasmine Brown, author of Twice as Hard and Future Physician, is my guest today on Studio Tulsa Medical Monday. Jasmine Brown, welcome to Medical Monday. I'd love to start by just having you tell us about the phrase twice as hard and uh, where it comes from and what it means to you. Yeah, twice as hard. It's a bit of play on words in a few different ways. So the phrase twice as hard or you have to work twice as hard to get half as much is something that is commonly discussed within Black communities and is even seen within research where if a Black applicant or an applicant with a Black sounding name and an applicant, the same applicant with a white sounding name is presented to a job, the white sounding name is much more likely to get the job than the black sounding name, even though they're the same application. And I think that's something that a lot of black Americans experience within society of feeling that they have to be over and above in order to get certain opportunities. But then with the book, I also was touching on this intersectionality of being Black and a woman and the challenges that come with having these two identities. It's not necessarily twice or four times as hard or whatever, but just wanting to note that of there are extra challenges that these women face by being both Black and a woman. Yeah, I mean, that comes across in the book. And certainly, I think, in, you know, the medical education establishment, which, you know, up until, you know, relatively recently was dominated by men and white men in particular, being black or uh, or a woman was definitely twice as hard. You had to go above and beyond and kind of prove yourself. But I think you're right. There's title it twice as hard. But many of your subjects in the book, um, for example, Dr. Mae Chin, I read that chapter and I thought, oh my goodness, she had to work probably <laughs> 16 times as hard. I mean, she had to support herself through medical school, financing it by teaching piano She had children to care for at home, other jobs. In addition to, I mean, the hours she kept were absolutely unbelievable. Can you tell us a little bit about Mei Chin? Because she was someone from history that I knew nothing about. Most most of these subjects in your book, I I didn't know anything about. Yeah, Dr. Mei Chin, her story was really incredible to me. And she was actually one of the first women in the book that I learned about when I was doing my research on this topic. So... She was born around 1900. Her father was born into slavery and he ran away. And then her mother, who was also African-American, she was born 
a few years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. So while she was basically an indentured servant, she wasn't officially a slave because slavery had been outlawed by that point. But neither of them had gone to college. Her mother was very supportive of May and believed that education was really important for her to have social mobility and to move past the financial struggles that they faced. And so she encouraged her a lot to pursue higher education, which she ended up doing. She went to college and medical school. But this actually led to challenges with her father because at this time, at the turn of the 20th century, women were expected to get married and have kids. And pursuing a profession was something that was often frowned upon. And that was what happened. That was the perspective that her father shared. So once she decided to go to college, he basically disowned her. He refused to support her financially um, and her academic studies. And he even just stopped talking to her, even though they lived in the same home for years beyond her starting in college. And so May and her mom worked really hard to to pay for school. Um, and as you mentioned, one of the financial sources that she found was through piano. This was actually really interesting. So her mother was worked for a wealthy family, um, the Tiffany's, when May was younger. And so she was like a live-in servant. So her daughter, May, lived with them for a period. And the Tiffany's actually allowed her to get some of the teaching that the Tiffany children received. So whether that be in-home tutoring or going to different plays and musical performances within New York. And that's when May really developed this love for music and piano, which she pursued down the road. And and that side of her career was just also really incredible. Um, She was a pianist and an accompanist. And at one point, she started to be an accompanist for Paul Robeson, who who is still an iconic musician. And they would do different performances together, at some point even performing at parties held by Madam C.J. Walker, who was, who was a Black woman, but that was actually the first self-made female billionaire in the U.S. because of Black hair care products that she developed. So May was very involved in this huge blossoming music scene involved in the Harlem Renaissance, but then at the same time, she was pushing to further her medical career. So she went to undergrad at Columbia, then she went to medical school at NYU. And after graduating from medical school, residency programs across the board refused her because she was a black woman. So then she started working for a group of male physicians, basically as an apprentice, training under them in their private practice. They also discriminated against her. They wouldn't acknowledge her in public, and they forced her to pay rent to live in the building where the private practice was held, even though a physician was required to live there. And they continued to raise the rent to the point where she could no longer afford it. So she left the practice, went to open her own practice, and at this time, so this is like the 1930s, there's racial segregation of hospitals. So Black physicians were not hired at these hospitals. And a lot of Black patients were either not treated at all or they were treated 
at a subpar level, like there would be the black floors on the bottom of the hospital. So what May did, she actually had a practice where she provided care to these patients by making house calls. And some of the most interesting story that I like learned about with Dr. Chen and her medical practice was how she provided surgical care to these patients who didn't have access in the hospitals. She partnered up with a Black male physician who was trained at Howard, Dr. Peter Marshall Murray, and they would literally perform surgeries in these patients' homes. So either an ironing board or the patient's bed was the OR table. They would sterilize the equipment and the washroom and the oven in the patient's homes. And they would go through the entire practice of the surgery just with each other. So May or Dr. Chen would induce them. They would put them under anesthesia. Dr. Murray would carry out the surgery. If the patient ended up losing too much blood, May or Dr. Chen using laboratory equipment that she created for herself would type and screen the blood and then provide blood transfusions on the spot. And it would do a direct transfusion between the donor and the patient. And then they would be on call until the patient was able to get up after the surgery. And it was just really incredible for me to learn how she overcame the challenges that she faced of not having employment at these hospitals and then the ingenuity that she employed provide necessary care for these patients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it just was absolutely blew my mind how much she had to endure. And it was her laboratory work on top of being a piano teacher that paid some of the bills, but also gave her this great education in like clinical pathology and uh, the rising kind of medical science. So she learned some of these laboratory techniques. And as you said, uh, the ability to provide anesthesia, which her fellow medical students marveled at and, and, you know, sought her counsel. But then, of course, being discriminated against, she could never get an actual residency position or work in these hospitals. I mean, it's just atrocious, just unbelievable. You're listening to Studio Tulsa. It's Medical Monday. I'm John Schumann. I guess today is Jasmine Brown, who is a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of a brand new book called Twice as Hard. It's the stories of black women who fought to become physicians from the Civil War to the 21st century. And Jasmine Brown really took on this project, as I understand it, when you were a Rhodes Scholar. You had been uh, an undergraduate at the University of Washington in St. Louis. And this is a very personal project for you. So tell us a little bit about how you decided to write this book. I first started thinking about this project when I was at WashU, actually experiencing microaggressions myself and then learning about other students across other students of color across the country who were experiencing prejudice in the lab. And I just, I didn't understand why it was so prevalent and I wanted to figure out where this was coming from. So when I got the Rhodes Scholarship, I found out that Oxford had this master's program in history of science, medicine, and technology. And it seemed like the perfect opportunity for me to really dig deep into looking at what were the historical roots for the challenges that exist today? And so since at that point I was starting to get more interested in medicine, I decided to focus, look at that from the lens of the medical space. And when starting to research that area, I realized that there is very limited literature looking at the intersection 
of being both black and a woman within medicine. And since I am a black woman going into medicine, it felt like the perfect marriage for me to pursue. So that's what I looked into for my master's. My dissertation was focusing on the social and structural barriers put in place to prevent black women from entering medicine in the U.S. And as I delved deeper into the project, I saw again, that there was just such a dearth of information on these Black women physicians and particularly literature on these Black women physicians. And the research that I had uncovered was just, there was so much breath that I couldn't fit in an article or a few articles. So I decided to write it as a book. And, and that's what I did. I mean, it's just remarkable. I mean, it's, uh, it's such an incredible project. And, um, you know, congratulations to you. It's not, <laughs> medical school's hard enough. <laughs> as is, you know, I would say even most Rhodes Scholars, which you think of as like the creme de la creme of scholars, you know, not everyone that comes out of there is able to translate their research into a book. But this, this has such incredible value. And as you point out, the historical record is so lacking. Um, you are a student at the University of Pennsylvania, and you write movingly about walking down the august halls of the older part of it, whether it's the medical school or the hospital where there's the portraiture of, of the white male physicians. Um, and you point out that you'd love to see people like you up there someday. And so the very first chapter, the person that you and some historians think was the very first black female physician in the United States is named Rebecca Lee Crumpler. And there are simply no photographs of her and very little in the way of a historical record. Um, she had to overcome quite some obstacles in order to become a physician when, of course, people in the 1800s thought that uh, blacks were inferior, couldn't learn the material, and let alone as a woman. Um, tell us a little bit about her story. Yeah, so as you mentioned, there was such limited data about our archives, about her life. And it was actually shocking to me because when I first started researching her, I like Googled her name, looked up these images and started to envision this woman that had popped up on the screen. And it wasn't until a few months later, as I was reading more about her story, that I found out that the woman that is the most commonly pictured in association with her name is actually the first Black female nurse. And so that dissociation in itself was upsetting, frustrating, like why was there not an image saved of her? Like, why didn't one think she was important enough to save her legacy in that way? But so she went to the New England Female Medical College in 1860. And as the Civil War broke out, she actually had to leave because there were white Bostonians who were against the ending of slavery who started to terrorize Black neighborhoods beating people, um, harming them. Some people even died. And this was only a few miles away from her school. And so I wasn't able to find any records that stated if she was harmed or if someone that she knew was harmed. But it was definitely close to home. And so then she left Boston, returned after the Civil War had ended. And her medical school actually tried to take, or they did take away her financial aid citing that her reason for leaving wasn't legitimate enough. So this was a women's medical college. She's the only Black woman to ever attend the school. So maybe from the perspective of the administrators, none of the white women in the medical school had to leave. So they didn't give her 
safety enough consideration. But thankfully, she was able to find funding from up Black community members who helped support her education. She graduated in 1864, 14 months after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And then she went to Richmond, Virginia to provide medical care for those newly freed Black Americans. And it was even striking there that while she went down with a group of other physicians who also presumably believed that it was important to provide care for this these Black Americans, they did not acknowledge her as a doctor. They said that her MD stood for nothing more than a mule driver. The pharmacist wouldn't accept the prescriptions that she gave for her patients. But still, she kept going on providing care for her patients. And it was just really incredible to me that she continued to face this pushback. But regardless, she stayed steady on what she believed in and her calling and became that physician. Yeah, I mean, again, not just twice as hard, but like infinitely harder just in, in almost every facet. That's a theme that came up a lot in some of the, the history of the Freedmen's Bureau uh, and where some of the uh, black female physicians that you highlight uh, did some other training. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The Freedmen's Hospital? Yeah. At Howard University? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I think a, a major trend that I saw in my research was just the importance of black medical schools and training Black physicians. And as with my initial goal of trying to figure out what were these barriers that lead to the challenges that we face today, the elimination of many Black medical schools was one of those key barriers. So in 1900, there were 160 Black female physicians. In 1910, there was a flex report that changed the way that medicine is practiced, established a standard where biomedicine and biomedical research was incorporated into clinical management, but it also recommended the closing of all women's medical colleges and most black medical colleges. At the turn of the 20th century, there were at least 14 black medical schools or departments. But then after the Flexner Report, there were only two left, Howard and Meharry. And Abraham Flexner, was explicit with his bias, even in his report. He said that Black physicians only needed to treat Black patients, and the fewer the better. <laughs> and that's what happened. The number of Black men physicians toppled in 1920. There was only 65. And then when you look at long-term statistics on Black physicians, in 1910, 2.5% of all physicians were Black. And then almost 100 years later, in 2006, 2.2% of all physicians were Black. And so just realizing how much the Flexner Report and the closing of these Black medical schools impacted demographics for over a century. And then how even today, now there are four Black medical schools, Howard, Meharry, Morehouse, and Charles Drew, which is associated with UCLA. More than half of all Black physicians are trained at these four HBCUs, despite there being more than 100 medical schools in the country. Um, So I saw that coming up, not only with those statistics, but also in the lives of individual physicians, as you mentioned in the book. Um, For instance, Dr. Dorothy Farabee, who 
She went to Tufts Medical School. She was actually number one in her entire class as the only black woman in that class and one of five women in the entire class. Yet she was rejected by all of the residency programs that she initially applied to. They either said that the spots were filled or she wasn't competitive enough, even though all the male medical students in her class had gotten into residency programs. This was in the 1920s. So all of the male medical students had gotten into their residency, um, into a residency program. And then the four white women in her class, they also faced challenges getting into residency programs that they were eventually able to get in, largely through connections that some of their family members had. So Dr. Farabee had to look for different avenues to get her medical training. And her brother, who was actually training at Howard's Law School, had directed her to look at residency programs in D.C. And eventually she ended up being steered to Friedman's Hospital, which is affiliated with Howard University. And that's where she got her training. And then she actually stayed at Howard many years, gaining leadership positions and then eventually getting opportunities to even represent the U.S. on a global scale and different work abroad. And so, yeah, those Black medical schools, Black residency programs have been extremely important in training Black physicians throughout history. And Jasmine, we were talking about the importance of HBCUs, uh, historic Black colleges and universities, and their continued important significance in terms of training um, black health professionals uh, to this day, where you said there are four HBCU medical schools that train more than half of uh, black doctors in the U.S. This is kind of amazing. One of the other themes that kind of emerged from the book was the importance of sororities, because a number of your subjects, and I think there are eight or nine uh, subjects that you write about, um, were members of, of a couple of different sororities. But it seems like the, the, those communities, as they were, really provided a great deal of support to some of these women through these struggles to get both their education and then their clinical training. Can you say a little bit about um, about the sororities? Yeah, so there were a few women um, in the book who were a part of Black sororities. So the two sororities that I mentioned was Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority, which is the first Black sorority, and Delta Sigma Theta sorority, which is the second. So I'll share two different stories. So Dr. Farabee actually ended up becoming the international president of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority. But while she was still, was not the president, but was a member, she actually led the Mississippi Health Project with Alpha Kappa Alpha, which led to them, her along with other black female medical professionals, they went to Mississippi with the aim of providing medical care for black sharecropping families. And they had gone down, they set up these clinics, but then the white plantation owners would not let these black families leave the plantation to go get medical care. So then they packed up all their medical equipment in their cars and they went plantation to plantation to provide care for these families. This was in 1930s and early 1940s. And this actually became the first mobile health clinic in the U.S. So that was extremely important. Um, she even served on President Kenny's health committee. And so that community of Black women professionals was really vital in advancing her goals. And then another example is 
the story of Dr. Edith Irby Jones, who is actually the first Black person to attend a racially integrated medical school in the South. This was in the late 1940s, before the Brown versus Board of Education case that led to the integration of schools nationally. And she went to the University of Arkansas Medical School. And while she was there, she was a member of Delta Sigma Theta. She actually went to an HBCU, Philander Smith College, and did a panel talking about her career. And one of the women who was attending that panel was Jocelyn Elders, who was also a member of Delta Sigma Theta. And at the time, so Jocelyn was a college student at Philander Smith. Her aspiration was becoming a sales clerk at Dillard's, at a Dillard's store, because her family was actually sharecroppers, and she knew the financial insecurity that came with that. So she believed that if she became a sales clerk at this established store, then she would be more stable. But when she met Edith Irby Jones, who at the time was still a medical student, she was so inspired. She said she had never met a physician up until that point. And is said, you can't be what you can't see. But after she saw this Black woman in the medical community, in the medical profession, she decided she wanted to become a doctor. So she went from wanting to become a Dillard sales clerk to wanting to become a doctor. And that's exactly what she did. A few years later, she also went to the University of Arkansas Medical School. And she ended up becoming a U.S. Surgeon General the first Black Surgeon General and the second female Surgeon General. But if she had not met Dr. Edith Irby Jones at this Black sorority event, she might have never become a physician at all. And so just that community, that network of Black women trying to support each other, seeing how long, how far that can go. I love that story because it just, again, shows the importance of representation and how important it is to have role models and to have people that you can look up to and aspire to be or be like or become. And I think that helps explain a, a lot of what drove you to this writing project, your book, Twice as Hard. I wanted to finish up by asking you uh, about something that you founded in your undergraduate days. You started an organization at WashU called uh, MARS, the Minority Association of Rising Scientists. Tell us a little bit about what led you to found that and what its scope is. Yeah, so I started Mars. That was actually the most immediate response that I had to me personally experiencing prejudice in the lab, which was basically entailed like being questioned heavily on if I belonged in the lab, even after showing my ID and just how I coped with that. Because initially I felt really alienated. I didn't know who to talk to or if I should talk about it, but then realizing that there were many other Black students who were experiencing these challenges and research, decided to create this community so that we could come together, we would have that support, and then also with the aim of countering that implicit bias and also imposter syndrome that a lot of the students face in questioning if they actually did belong in the lab. So that group was mainly, has been at WashU. I actually spent some time at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard while I was an undergrad. I met some Harvard graduate students who I created a similar program in their neuroscience department. 
And we had started working together trying to create this national network of scientists of color. It didn't end up panning out because then I, I went to Oxford, I got busy. Um, but that's an aim that I carry with me of trying to increase diversity in science and medicine and to support students along their journeys. Well, it is a, an admirable goal, and uh, it's articulated somewhat in this beautiful book, uh, the name of which is Twice as Hard, the Stories of Black Women Who Fought to Become Physicians from the Civil War to the 21st Century. And it's by my guest today, Jasmine Brown, who is a Rhodes Scholar and a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. Jasmine Brown, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Jasmine Brown is a third-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. Her new book is called Twice as Hard, the stories of black women who fought to become physicians from the Civil War to the 21st century. Well, that's our show for this Medical Monday. Studio Tulsa is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of KWGS or the University of Tulsa. For Studio Tulsa, I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe out there. Uh,